Cuisine Bites with Kelly Brett. Everything you'll ever need to know about food. Brought to you by Gaganow. Welcome along to the third of our very special kitchen conversations brought to you by Gaganow. In this episode, we look to Chand and Sid Sarawat, the couple behind three highly respected and loved Auckland restaurants, Cassia, Sid at the French Cafe and Siddharth. Once again, this conversation took place in two parts across two very different time periods. The first part, long before COVID-19 was even on our radar, and then post-lockdown, as these industry stalwarts were coming to terms with what the aftermath of a global pandemic would mean for their business. We have to be at the top of our game, giving the best value for money experience, given the times we're in. It's like kind of going back to the basics. Great service, great food is all it's all the about. The good old hospitality. The good old hospitality days. It's not about who's going to be the most innovative and tricky and who's going to pull the next magic trick out of the bag. It's not about that anymore. We'll take a look back at their incredible journey, one that led to Siddharth being named New Zealand's Restaurant of the Year last year at the Cuisine Good Food Awards in just a tick. But first, speaking of restaurant awards, the people behind the world's 50 Best Restaurant Awards have announced that their Bid for Recovery option will debut on July 3rd, offering food and travel enthusiasts the opportunity to bid for once-in-a-lifetime experiences with the world's best chefs. The funds raised will go towards providing financial relief for restaurants worldwide as they emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, and the auction is part of their 50 Best for Recovery program. I asked William Drew, Director of Content for World's 50 Best, to explain how their recovery program will work. News Bites. 50 Best, which is the organisation behind the world's 50 best restaurants as well as the world's 50 best bars and various other offshoots, it's a way of using you know, what we have in the network through the generosity of the restaurants on our lists, kind of the elite restaurants and bars, if you like, using them to help the, uh, the hospitality sector as a whole both in terms of um, different ways of, of getting through it and advice and resource and support, but also tangible financial help through fundraising. So to the 50 Best Recovery Auction, over 100 lots with some extraordinary global gastronomic experiences up for grabs. Can you tell us a few of the highlights? I mean, I know that's hard because they're all highlights. <laughs> yeah, there's more than 100, but we've been amazed by, by the sort of um, experiences that chefs and restaurateurs have been prepared to provide um what we want to do is create you know the sort of experiences that money usually buy so of course it involves going and having a tasting menu um let's take a, an example in in berlin uh noble heart and schmutzig very interesting restaurant in berlin um they're not only going to give you the, the, the dinner there they're actually the, the going to go for lunch with the head chef in and he's going to talk about the origins of of new german food movement and so on in the afternoon uh billy wagner the owner of noble heart and schmutzig is going to take uh, people shopping for the afternoon they've then got a makeup artist coming to the hotel of the auction winner for a free makeup makeover session then you go for the dinner and then after dinner he's going to take you clubbing in uh, berlin's famous famous techno clubs so that's one for the for the foodie clubbers out there these are the sort of experiences you you simply wouldn't usually be able to get where you get up close to person with with the chefs and restaurateurs and you get unique experiences on the ground that are way beyond food they're centered around food but they're they're more than that um as well some experiences are involved in, you know a three-day trip to singapore staying in both Marina Bay Sands and Capella Resorts, which is um, 
pretty luxurious and dining at Odette, drinking at Atlas Bar, dining at Burnt Ends, uh, getting a Hawker's tour, uh, Hawker stall tour with um, Evelyn Chen, our academy chair and local food expert uh, on, on the ground in Singapore. So, you know, these are the sort of extraordinary experiences that you can buy on the auction from July the 3rd. How will you work out the distribution of proceeds that are collected from this? Yeah, we've done a lot of work on this. Um, we've come to the conclusion that there are three strands uh, distribute the, the funds via. The first is direct grants. Um, we are going to open up uh, a grant application system in July to any independent restaurant on bar. There will be a criteria within that that we'll publish uh, nearer the time. Any independent restaurant or bar uh, that is struggling um, will potentially have the opportunity to get a 5,000 US dollar grant, which maybe can make a difference for them. It's not, we understand that it's not going to be life changing, but it could be, uh, it could help, and we want to help as many restaurants and bars as possible. Yes. On top of that, we're making a contribution to a series of non profit organizations around the world um, that are both helping the restaurant and bar sectors and in many cases helping feed the, the needy, those most vulnerable at the same time, whether that be the Lee Initiative in, in the US or um, Nosso Prato in Brazil and, and various others that, that, that we've listed. Um, and then finally, we're making a contribution to the social gastronomy movement, which has a, um, a fund which is helping to try and feed uh, over a million meals to those most in need around the world through its network of charitable uh, organizations and food communities. Um, so across those three different strands, we hope to help restaurant businesses, but also the people behind them as well. William, can I ask, with the, the hospitality industry being hit so hard worldwide, how will this affect the 50 best lists and the awards for 2021? Well, it's a, it's a big question that's very difficult to answer mm. at the moment. Um, we don't know what shape and um, um, format the 2021 or even future awards beyond that will take. We're very confident that 50 Best has a really important role to play um, in helping promote the you know the restaurant industry that we that we all love um, and helping reflect what's going on globally and being a platform for discussion as well as celebration as well as um, you know great talent and emerging talent so we're very confident that we have an important role to play but how that manifests itself in terms of the list and the awards is difficult to tell at this stage we're aware that we We'll need to adapt and evolve, just like any organisation, to reflect the changes in in global situation and global gastronomy. People may not be travelling so much, or they may be travelling, you know, in a much more discerning fashion. Uh, people may uh, adjust uh, the way they their menus. You know, chefs and restaurateurs may be rethinking and inevitably being forced to rethink exactly what they're doing and why. So that will kind of be reflected in in what we do. We're not we're not sitting in an ivory tower thinking that we're just going to carry on as usual after after a short pause. Um, you know things will change uh, undoubtedly, but quite how they change is too early to say. Many fine dining establishments, if they're still standing um, when they come out of this, are, are, are taking a much more simple approach to their menus. Uh, do you think that's a sign of things to come? It's difficult to say. I wouldn't want to be very definitive that you know everyone there's, there's a fee there's been some talk that all restaurants will 
focus on the local and focus on the local community um, and you know pare down them their menus and so on that's uh, been a short-term reaction in the longer term I'm not sure that that will be the uh, the reaction but I think that will have an influence I think people will be more aware of their local market and um, you know having a, a wider accessibility of their menus but that doesn't mean that the sort of luxury end of dining will disappear I think those special experiences that people want will perhaps become even more premium even more um, attractive so I don't think it's as simple as that focusing but I think there is it has made people rethink and of course it's important you know to be accessible and also to react to the marketplace one of the strengths of the restaurant industry has been its agility you know it's a tight margin business as we know which means it's 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 fragile and has suffered in many ways but it also in the flip side of that is that it's very agile it's very responsive it can move pretty fast and I think a lot of the restaurants that we've seen around the world have reacted in extraordinary ways, both in helping other people by feeding those that need feeding more um, in these vulnerable times, but also in terms of survival, in terms of helping themselves and in, in pivoting to, to take away or in adjusting their menus um, in often very innovative ways. All details of the auction will be available on the 50 Best for Recovery webpage, as well as via Instagram at the World's 50 Best and Facebook at 50 Best Restaurants. Cuisine Bites, brought to you by Gaganau. Earlier this year, I set out to tell the story of the Sarawats. The amazing couple behind award-winning Auckland restaurants Cassia, sit at the French Cafe, and New Zealand's best restaurant for 2019, according to the Cuisine Good Food Awards, Siddharth. Neither Chand, Sid or I knew at the time what challenges would lie ahead. And over the course of these two very different conversations, it's interesting to hear how quickly we can adapt to change and new challenges. But let's start at the beginning, where the paths of two diverse and extremely talented individuals crossed unexpectedly in Auckland and produced a partnership where a commitment to perfection is paramount. For the love of foes, it arrived about two years before me. I came here to do my uh, degree in uh, Bachelor of Arts at University of Auckland. So I came totally fresh off the boat, didn't know anyone in New Zealand and was slowly making my way, getting to know things. And I met Sid um, at a common friend's house. Uh, I was flatting with them and Sid was one of their friends. Where was home for you? India at the time, in uh, Pune, which is uh, about two and a half hours away from Mumbai. It's a very cultural city with a lot of educational institutions and young people. I came here in 2000 from the Middle East, so I did my training and an apprenticeship over there. And I worked there for a year as well, so three years in the Middle East and then uh, New Zealand in 2000. Okay, so where were you at as a chef when you arrived here in Auckland? My first role was at Non Solo Pizza because I had an Italian background. So I took a chef de party position there and worked there for about two years. Where were you at skills-wise? Like what level were you at? Um, I was the chef de party. Chef de party is basically uh, a chef who runs a section. So you'll be responsible for all the food ordering, all the preparation in that section and um, carrying out service every night. Mm. And so when you say Middle East, were you, were you in Dubai? Um, close to Dubai, um, called Muscat. So, oh. Yeah. Oh. So I worked there at the Grand Hyatt Muscat. That's a beautiful place. Chan, first impressions for you when you arrived? 
um, I was very lost. <laughs> I didn't know which way was Upper Queen Street or <laughs> Lower Queen Street, and I had to make my way to University of Auckland. And this is time before pastoral care came in for international students. I was one of the first, probably, international students coming to Auckland University, left to fend on my own. There was missed orientation. I was very, very confused and wanted to catch the next flight home. <laughs> for first week, I was probably in tears um, and hated New Zealand, couldn't wait to go home. And, but when you go back, it's, it's that weird time where you don't know what you call home. You're so transient. You go back home and your friends have moved on and things have moved on. You come back to New Zealand and it's not quite home. It took me about a good two years before I said, no, I definitely mm. want to live here and I don't want to go back. <laughs> what brought the two of you together? Um, I was flatting with his friends and um, so we just uh, had a kind of hooked up one night and the rest is history. He used to drive a little uh, cool sports car back then and I thought he was quite hot and I was like, oh, didn't know anything about food industry or chefing or anything. I had to read Jamie Oliver cookbooks to find out what he was talking about because I, I was a vegetarian before I came to New Zealand. Um, didn't know that a cheeseburger didn't mean a cheese in a burger. <laughs> so I had quite a few surprises and cultural shocks and... Um, I made, I, you know, I opened a Jamie Oliver cookbook to find out what prosciutto was and learned how to cook for him. How stressful must that have been? I mean, what did you, the first time you cooked for him, how stressful was that? Very scary. <laughs> <laughs> but then I did see him a couple of times after work, eating a Subway or uh, having a pie. And so, you know, you, you see the hum, human side of a chef and that, you know, they can eat junk food too and that makes it all right. A lot of chefs that I talk to always tell me that after work they have a pie. Nice and crisp outside, beautiful, warm filling. You can't... It's yeah. hard to resist that. It's yeah. just comforting. Yeah. And you don't have to cook it. Exactly, it's ready to go. <laughs> Do you guys remember that moment that you decided to make the leap into restaurant ownership or was it a gradual realisation? Um, I guess I started at The Grove in 2006 and that was my plan that after The Grove we will open a restaurant together. Didn't know when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen. You were getting restless, so we had bought our first home. He'd been at the Grove for about a year and a half, two years, and he just wanted to be able to have that freedom with his creativity. And it was just burning up inside him, and we could, I could see that happening. Mm. So um, he used to go to a little cafe, and that's where we went, met our first silent investor, and he... Um, decided to take a mortgage over, second mortgage over our house and believed in him. And, you know, we owe a lot to um, our investor, the first guy who believed in us, and said, right, you can, Chan, you can keep working um, and Sid can get into the business. So I had to keep my job. That was one of the conditions. And you put everything on the line. Wow. It's scary, but you just do it because we all had faith in him and you could see that restless passion in him. Wow. When you got to the Grove, did you take over from Michael? Yeah. yeah. So how, how was that? Because you're, you're going into another chef's space, you know, a well-known chef, and then there's an expectation. Oh, it, was, it was very daunting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Michael's an amazing chef, and the profile he had, I, I was not nowhere close to that. Mm. I mean, few people knew me, but not as much as what they knew Michael, and he'd been there for three, four years. He had his own style, he had all his team, and they, I walked in there and I was shivering. Um, it took me, took me a few months to settle down, but that's, that's always the case, and to kind of really develop my own style and team and everything. Mm. 
but after that it was a lot of fun. You've got to hand it to Michael Douth for having the the foresight and having the hiring skills though to be able to give people opportunities. That restaurant's really been a place where so many amazing chefs have, have broken their teeth. Oh, completely. He's, he's got an amazing palate, great with wine, great person to work with. And yeah, he's, he's had some um, really good uh, people work, just not chefs, but even in front of house. So we come to Siddharth, the first restaurant. Sid, what was the vision at the very beginning? The main vision was to have it as creative as possible, avant-garde, uh, groundbreaking, but still a, a sense of coming to our own home. We wanted to be really warm, approachable, um, and just a lot of fun. What was opening night like? I wasn't there on opening night uh, because I had to keep my job as an English teacher at Rangitota College. Oh, no. But I do remember a week before I was going into um, a department meeting and I was, I was a new teacher. I was still a beginner teacher. And Sid calls me and says, um, we have no gas. I said, what do you mean you have no gas? He's like, well, we have no gas. There is no gas. <laughs> like, you did, did you forget to connect it? He's like, well, <laughs> no. Um, oh, no. What did you expect Chan to do about that? Well, I th- she was managing the <laughs> all the logistics of everything, yeah. and she was setting up all the new accounts and stuff. Yeah. So I thought, like, I-, I was doing other things. Just call Chan. Yeah, <laughs> and even the landlord had said, "Oh, just just call call the gas company four weeks before." Mm-hmm. We thought we were organised, and um, they they said, "Oh, it's going to be another month from here on." And, and I said, "Oh, well, but we're opening next week," and they're like, "Well, that's not our problem." My uh, workplace at um, Regitoto College looked um, very organized, but I was running a plan to run open a new business while doing my own teaching and planning, which was, um, yeah, it's quite busy. <laughs> but yeah, he called me then and I was like, well, we need to get a... So we worked on camping stoves for the first oh, three weeks. We borrowed camping stoves and induction. You know, with rational ovens and water baths, you can do a lot of stuff without gas now, which is mm-hmm. amazing. And... You have to adapt. You have to just make things happen. Go with the flow. Um, but so what was that first night like? Do you remember who was in there? What was it like? Um, yeah, it was so we did two soft openings, two, uh, Tuesday night and Wednesday night, and Thursday was our first open day. And you won't believe it, uh, we did four people. On your opening night? Yeah. Um, oh, and when, when I was leaving the Grove, there was this massive hype that Siddharth will be booked out three months ahead, and I was very excited with that hype. Um, but when we did four people the first night and one of them was a reviewer and one of them was a fellow chef, it was heartbreaking. Oh. It was it was very hard to kind of come over that, and but we just kept going. Yeah. Yeah. And we had some quiet nights, some um, great nights, and it was very inconsistent, um, but in March or April we got Best New Restaurant from Metro mm-hmm. and that really changed a lot of things for us. Um, also just sort of the location is quite in- intimidating for people. It used to be an old Nepalese restaurant, so when we walked in, it was orange walls, brass plates. Mm. It was hard to visualise, but with the view, we just the view sold us. And then we thought he had quite a reputation already that we would be able to fill the space every night. But we weren't economists, and it was the middle of recession mm. in 2009 when we opened the restaurant. So it was disheartening. He'd call and say, do I open for two people? And yes, you do, because you never know if someone walks in. And we took to dropping flyers around houses in Ponsonby and Graylin. And, you'd, you know, you'd look at, put your menu down in every house on the street. We just walk streets on our days off 
but that's what you do to get a business going. So were you scared? Um, yeah, you, we, we were scared because we had everything on the line. We had a house, um, you know, also no one wants to fail in your first go, in your first restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's quite disheartening, but failure was not an option, so you just keep going. By the time I arrived in Auckland in 2015, you were booked up, you know, three, four months in advance. When did that happen? I think after winning a few awards and also we came up with the Tuesday Test Kitchen, which um, our Tuesdays were our worst nights ever. We would probably have, again, the four or five or ten people at the most. And Sid decided that would be a great night to let the chefs come up with new experimental dishes and the menu would change every week. Eight courses for $80 and that kind of opened up a lot of possibilities and made it really accessible for a lot of people to come in and try Siddharth and then come back. And that's how we kind of built the customer base. And we were booked out four to six weeks ahead. Mm-hmm. It was it was really a um, cool thing because you could try a lot of different um, combinations and techniques and yeah, just let loose. So on to Cassia. Uh, you obviously saw a gap in the market when it came to great modern Indian cuisine. But again, a bit of a risk. He always wanted to do, I think Cassia was actually, the concept was in his mind before Siddharth, but because he was more familiar and known for um, the kind of food he did at Siddharth, that that was a lesser risk at the time. And also there was nothing in any modern Asian being done in all of Auckland. So things like the Blueberries Inn kind of paved the way for Cassia to come into existence. And when we saw um, this dumpling house and we went in there and we said oh the the space is really cool if it ever goes bust we will go in there Mm -hmm. and it did in about two months um mandarin dumpling was shut and we read about it in um, the herald and just leapt at the chance to open what we had always imagined in that Mm -hmm. space Mm -hmm. so in in some ways it was a risk but it was a risk we had to take because we actually were really passionate about that. We often went to the stereotypical Indian restaurants back in the day and always felt there was something missing, either the ambience or just having a big bowl of curry with the protein not being, you know, four pieces of chicken doesn't satisfy you. And what he would do is he, he would cook a nice piece of confit duck leg for, or bring it from Siddharth and then I would make the sauce and we would combined efforts and mm-hmm. we, this is so pleasurable why can't we eat this in a restaurant yes and that's how cassia was actually born and so was there always an expectation that the two of you would end up with an indian restaurant we we needed to evolve a little bit more Sadat was amazing um they, we thought it was settled and i wanted the next challenge and that's where cassia was born um i hadn't really cooked much indian food besides staff dinners. <laughs> um, so we thought we'll, we'll take it a step further and see how far we can take Indian food. But again, I didn't have much knowledge, so I started researching a lot more. And Leslie was a big factor of the success of Cassia as well. Mm. He was the same. He had never really cooked Indian food before. <laughs> we learned along the way. And it took about a year for Cassia to really find the proper vision and the, the, the flavour of food. Do you think that eventually every chef kind of returns to their roots? Absolutely. I think it's so important to show where you come from. And if you, if you believe in what the, the vision of that cuisine or concept is, I think it's, it's something very beautiful. I think it's always in your blood, right? You know that cuisine because you've grown up eating it. 
in your own house um, as you grew up, your grandmother made it. It's familiar. So even though you may not know how to cook it, you figure it out because you're intuitive. With My mum didn't really teach me how to cook. When I came to New Zealand, I would go, well, what colour was that curry that mum made? And then play around with the spice. and Go, yep, you totally screwed up sometimes. But you learn and you keep practising and you know it. It's in your blood. And that's the process that whether you cook at home or you're cooking in the restaurant, it's all about intuition. It's all about passion for food or life or anything. Um, the other thing why we opened Cassia, we wanted our team to progress as well. If uh, if we just had Siddhar today, I would be on the pans every day. Mm. Basically, would never give any of the chef de parties or sous chefs to get on there and develop themselves as head chefs and move on somewhere else. So with opening Cassia, we had another 20 um, team players and th- that's the whole beauty about what we do, how you see people develop. Do you remember the first time you had a reaction to your food that really made you think, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this? I think it's, it's one of those, cooking is so collaborative that it's, it's everyone together. Um, so um, it, it always is just not me. I think it's when you come up with a dish together. But I think Test Kitchen was a, a real turning point for us because it gave me a lot of freedom to take risks and I enjoyed that risk a lot and sometimes it paid off, sometimes it didn't. But that's the whole beauty about food and coming up with ideas. I think you come up with some really crazy combinations and you know when they work, and he used to do this before, he probably doesn't remember, but he used to have a beef and a lottie with... Uh, brown, butter. brown butter ice cream in it and it was so crazy like a, <laughs> a raw piece of beef carpaccio <laughs> with brown butter ice cream in I'm thinking back to 2004 or 5 it was unheard of but when you had it it made sense and yeah. it tasted good and so for me it was at that point I was like well he is very creative and he can make crazy combinations mm-hmm. come alive and we had the Rockford cheesecake at Siddharth, which became kind of a signature. You either liked it, loved it, or you hated it. Polarizing. Polarizing. Um, But I loved it. And I think so many diners just didn't want that to go away. Coming in, I knew nothing about any of you. And when people spoke to me about Siddharth and Sid, it was almost as if there was an expectation that eating there would, there would be some, you would be challenged in some way. In a good way, but challenged. Yeah, yeah. My food was always very challenging and it's, it's changed a little bit over the time. I think as you grow as a chef, your, your style just changes and there's no, um, nothing right or wrong about it. And I find I'm a bit more simple now. Simpler, cleaner flavours, less on the plate. Mm. I think that's confidence though. Probably, yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's, again, it's all about cooking with your intuition and what, what you feel like cooking at that time. We did a retrospective on some dishes on the last 10 years in when we turned nine at Siddharth. It was quite interesting to find these um, plates that Sid had done back in 2009. Um, it's like a bit like fashion. You look, yes, at, yes. look at time periods and you, change, you see how a person as a chef has evolved, but also how time has changed. Like molecular used to be, gastronomy used to be a big thing back in 2009. I don't think Sid would use any of those techniques or well, maybe some but not a lot of those anymore it's more organic now and his plating's more simple 
but it's it's nice to go back and have a look. Mm. It's like looking at your photographs from the 80s and going, oh, shoulder pads. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I liked a good shoulder pad. <laughs> So in 2017, we saw you driving a very strong New Zealand story through the Art menu. What was your focus there? That was a little bit of a change of direction there. We just wanted to show how beautiful New Zealand produce is. And we're still trying to do the same with Indian food and, and same at the French Cafe. We want to have a really strong representation. We just don't want it to become gimmicky though. And that's what I found that suddenly there was a lot of places trying to do similar things. So we we did we do it, but we just do it quietly now. And um, I think New Zealand's got the best produce. Um, so we really need to show uh, the tourists coming in and even the locals that how good we have it here. But it's that confidence again, isn't it? Because that's the hardest thing, I think, is to actually be able to let that beautiful produce shine and not overdo it. Exactly. And that's where less is more. Yeah. Where, you know, you take simple things and cook them honestly and a bit of technique involved, but uh, it's got to eat well at the end of the day. That's the main thing. But the customer still needs to feel like they've got something special and they can't do it at home. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, exactly. You can have some um, more uh, braising cuts or you can have um, trevally or kawai, but you do need to have crayfish as well, or especially when they're coming to a formal dining environment. I find certain trends a little bit hard to deal with and cope with, and I think I come from a more not a restaurant background or a chef background, and I see things as, yeah, if you're going to put two tomatoes on my plate, I, I think, well, what has a chef done here? Great, you've got two great t- tasting tomatoes or a piece of asparagus or corn, and that's showing seasonality. But I do want to see what the chef does, especially when you come to a place like Siddhar or sit at the French cafe. You want to do something, you want to eat something that you can't do at cook at home and experience something different. You want to experience what the chef can do produce is great but I just don't think you can just put it on a piece of plate and and expect it to speak for itself yeah carrots just a carrot carrots a carrot I can cook a, I can grow a carrot at home and it's going to taste bloody amazing but well I need Sid to do something with it to show his skill so last year 2018 a huge year for the two of you with the purchase of the French cafe and a tremendous opportunity for you to drive an iconic restaurant venue and at the same time a change of direction for Siddharth. Which came first, the decision to change the Siddharth menu or the decision to purchase the French Cafe? We bought French Cafe first and that's where, after we bought it, was we worked out what we we're going to do with Siddharth and the French Cafe. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a roller coaster for all of us and for people going to the restaurants because they're like, what's going on? Which restaurants are doing what, you know? And there was a bit of confusion all around, but I think now... The identities are pretty sorted. We always think change is good, and people um, who used to come to Siddharth are for that cuisine are now nowhere to come. It's got a bigger house mm. and a bigger home. Mm. That was always a question for me when you came in here because it's kind of like it was such an iconic restaurant that you took over, and you were very established and had your own name and personality by then and identity, but you were almost back in a situation like you were when you went in after Michael Meredith. You must have had to do some real thinking about how you progress that menu in a way that you kept the customers that were the crusted on um, old French cafe customer and also grew those new customers. And I can see what Simon did really well. He had people coming here for 20 years, so that's why he kept those dishes on for so long. And they were beautiful dishes, but we had to put our own identity and that's what we've done. It's a long road. We're still kind of learning. And 
Leslie has a big part to play with me. Um, he's, he's a chef who's been with me for a long time. We both have the same kind of vision for the French Cafe in terms of food. We, again, we want to push the boundaries more and more, but obviously small steps. Um, the diners that come here are slightly different to Sirat. They have uh, different expectations, but uh, the tasting menu is something that we're really excited about. And with the seasons, with the um, producers and all the fisheries in New Zealand now, we, we've got big plans for next year. Do you run the risk, though, with two beautiful high-end restaurants like this that you're splitting the one customer base between two? That does play some factor in it. That, um, and we do notice that a person who's been to a French cafe would probably go to sit out the next week. Mm. So you are sharing the same customer base. But then I think that's in Auckland and New Zealand in terms of population is so small compared to the rest of the world. We're not like Melbourne or Sydney. No. So we are always going to be tapping into the same customer base. If it wasn't said at the French cafe and was the French cafe, you'd still be tapping into the same customer because there are only that percentage of customers who will go around. It's like business class. You don't stop flying business class. It's a special occasion. You will still do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same with fine dining. So when I when we hear fine dining is dead or is not the way to go, I we just don't believe in it. Um, yeah, we may have the same customers going, but they want a different experience at mm. Siddharth. They have a different experience at Siddharth, the French cafe. They probably have a totally different experience at the Grove. And you go to experience that food and, and the restaurant. That's w- why you go there. There will always be a space for where people want to have that mm. really premium, flawless experience. The only problem here is that there's, as you say, less foot traffic and, and you've got a much smaller slice of that premium pie. So whoever's in that space has to be absolutely at the top of their game to be able to compete. And that's that's our biggest endeavour um, for the restaurants is that they all have to have complete different experiences. Mm. So we're constantly critiquing ourselves, saying, OK, this is a bit too similar to the other restaurant, so let's change that. Um, whenever diners come, they should say, OK, this is a complete different experience. Yeah, yeah. That's so important. And so to Siddharth, and I'm very pleased to say our Cuisine Restaurant of the Year for 2019. And indeed, I think you've achieved this because of sticking to your guns with the new direction for Siddharth. So how would you now describe that vision? What's changed? The regionalism is the biggest change, I think, for us. Um, We really want to show the strong connection of formal dining with the beauty about all the different regions in India, but again, elevated with modern techniques and New Zealand flavors and ingredients. Mm. And I think that's that, that, that vision with the whole team together has been the real defining moment for us. It's a tough time at the moment, a year on from all the recent changes and 10 years on from the opening of your first restaurant. Do you feel confident about what's to come? We'll always feel confident there is no other choice, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I said to Sid when we bought the French Cafe, um, we, if we don't do it, we might regret it. I always say, what is the worst case scenario? I would have to go back to teaching. You would have to be a consultant chef or be a chef and work for someone else who'd pay you a wage. And if you can digest that reality every single day, you keep carrying on. Yeah. It worries me that I don't see our premium restaurants keeping up with the increase in food costs and overheads and general inflation. I, I look at your um, a la carte menu at Siddharth and I don't see a huge difference to the prices on many of the upper medium range restaurants um, and, and of course those restaurants are great but they're not offering the full package of seamless surface location quality that Siddharth offers so 
that's the question, is is that sustainable as a model? I mean, we often compare the, um, for example, Cassia and Siddharth, you know, and you go, why, why, are they, why is it easier to fill a space like Cassia compared to a place like Siddharth? It's the perception. I think if you went to both restaurants, you'd end up paying the same. Mm. New Zealand as a whole doesn't charge. We don't charge, like you said, Kelly, that we don't, we're not able to charge what we should be charging. If you travel anywhere out of New Zealand in very in the first two days and if you went to a premium experience like Siddharth or sit at the French Cafe, you, well, w- you would expect yeah. to pay extra service charges, $50, $60 a main. Mm. We just can't do that in, in New Zealand. And one of the, we do try, like for example, with the Tuesday Test Kitchen, we did change the price by $15 after five years. And immediately it wasn't eight courses for $80. And you, you, you do risk losing customers over things like that. I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Same because, way. I mean, I, I don't understand. Rents go up, um, wages go up, overheads go up. Food cost here, I mean the food cost, I love this place, but I get a lot less in my supermarket trolley than I used to get in Australia, you know, so I just don't see how it's sustainable and I don't, I don't know if it's that the general consumer just doesn't value food. It, it really is a bugbear of mine as well because um, when we talk about, you know, fair wages and things like that and then... Yes, we all love to pay everybody fairly, but when you go for that deal, for that $12 meal, what do you really think is happening there? How is that sustainable? So as a a country or as a population, we need to change our mindset and go, if we want to have fair trade and, you know, fair trade ingredients, um, free range ingredients, best of everything in terms of ingredients, you expect that from a restaurant like Sedato said at the French Cafe, you want everybody to be paid really well, well, then you will have to pay for that experience. Mm-hmm. And we need to s- stop going for the deals. I really hate the cheap eats thing. I think that that's the worst messaging that you can send around food, that whole, and everyone's got these lists of cheap eats. I think there's got to be a better way to do that. You know, yes, there's casual, informal experiences that we do extremely well in New Zealand, but it shouldn't be called cheap eats, I don't think. Yeah, when you use the word cheap, I think it cheapens the entire experience. When you see all the top lists in the world, it's all formal dining restaurants. It's because there's so much love and labour that goes into, I'm not saying that casual is not, but you know, there's more casual restaurants than formal um, and there, there is a lot of thought and time that goes into um, that experience. People start at early, early hours in the morning, finish at late hours, and it's all for the love. So there's something to be said about that style of dining. But same, same thing, casual is, is same amount of work, but it's just faster. And that's why I think it appeals to a lot more people because you can go and control how much you want to spend. You can go and spend $20 ahead and be out in half an hour where there's a bit more commitment when it's a formal dining environment. And that's what uh, you go out for, is to have to be pampered, looked after. If it's your birthday or if you've just bought a new house, that's what you want to do, have a nice glass of champagne. And just let the food come and listen to their story and what, you know, what the restaurant's all about. And you, when you walk away, you should be like, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. That was, that was money well, spent well, you know. Uh, what people don't understand is it's the way they've ordered the dishes as well. It's not really going to, prog- like, having something so rich to start and then having a lighter dish as a second course and then saying, I don't feel like a dessert. It's not really the French cafe experience. Yeah. 
Um, whereas if you come and you say, okay, I'm going to have three courses or four courses, then you start with a lighter seafood dish and then maybe another seafood or a vegetarian and then have a, a, a poultry or, or a red meat, I think you have the right experience. But those three courses, four courses, just our suggestion. If someone comes and says, oh, listen, I've just landed from US and I, I, I'm not too hungry, can I just have um, just the main course? We're fine with that too. Mm-hmm. We're here to make people happy, but at the same time, it is quite important as any any restaurant in the world to create the right experience for the diner. Yeah, but you're also a business and you've got overheads and staff to pay and, and, and that seamless service and that premium um, style that we've been talking about. If people are just coming in and having one dish and then you've got to clear the table again and you've lost the seating for... That must also factor into it? And that's the thing with beauty about fine dining or formal dining is the, the labour, the cost that goes behind making that experience mm-hmm. happen. You know, tablecloths and just general maintenance of formal dining is, is, is a lot. And it just doesn't come with, say, you ordered a duck. That's not all you're going to get. There's someone making bread two days before for that person yeah. having that duck dish. There's snacks that, you know, have been like things are being starting to dehydrate for two days and it's gone in a mouthful. Yes. It, it could take two days to make, but it's gone in 10 seconds. And all that, it, it takes time and money to produce and love, you know. Um, so it's all, all relative. Obviously, people that eat out in that style all the time understand that and value that, but I think that there's a, a section of the public that really don't understand exactly how much goes into that experience. And it's my belief that a lot of it is psychological as well. When you hit a website and you see $190 or $175, that's my commitment to going to this restaurant. If you've never done that before, it can be daunting. Whereas when you see options like, oh yeah, I could have that and that and it's going to set me back, an entree in Maine, it's going to set me back maybe $60 if I have a glass of wine, maybe, uh, but I am in control. Mm. And that's what I we discussed, that it is a little bit psychological. So if, you, if the customer sees that they have choice and they have some control over the experience, 90% of the time they come in and they will end up going for the tasting menu or spending $180 because when you're in the moment, you don't overthink it and you just let yourself go and enjoy yourself and trust who you're in the hands of. So you do t- take a risk of maybe losing having 10% of the customers come in and have one dish or two dish and it does cost you more but in the overall scheme of things having let that person come in and have have that one or two dish dishes they'll probably come back again because they've experienced something that they want more of have a listen to you you don't sound like that young girl that knew nothing about (laughs) restaurants anymore do you I think I came from a business background so my brain my brain was always attuned to being in business. I reckon you did all right, Sid. I did well, thank you. <laughs> so can you leave the restaurants behind when you go home? Is that is that even possible? Mm. No, I don't think it ever is possible. We're trying, we're making a concerted effort to have more family time and time when we don't talk to each other. But the reality is we don't work in the same restaurant on the same day every given day. Mm. Um, we have fleeting conversations during the day if something is quite urgent. Um, or I hold a list and when he comes home over a glass of wine, we sit there, knock things off the list. But I don't think you can ever switch off. Um, even if we do, when we go on holiday, our phones are constantly on because you have alarms and uh, things to look, look out. You can never go have a sound night's sleep 
knowing everything will be perfect or you, sh- you cannot turn your phone off. Yeah. I wish that was a possibility. It isn't. No. And I know that we're all trying um, much harder, especially in this industry, towards um, achieving a better work-life balance, Sid. But at this level, it's kind of hard. You do have to give up some things to be able to be at this level, yeah? Oh, it's, it's very demanding. And that's, that's what we do it for, though. It gives you so much pleasure when everything is going right. And there's so much that happens behind the scenes to make a restaurant experience, whatever it might be. That's the, the most satisfying thing is when everything is going fine. If it's not, then, yeah, you can never let go. <laughs> you know, there's not, so many times I, I come home and I'm just, like, just so frustrated. And there's no rhyme or reason. It's just something out of the blues. Could be someone falling sick in the restaurant while they, you know, if they were quite old. Or could be a reservation that's been missed somewhere along the line, whether it could be the person who's making the uh, reservation or us losing it or staff not getting along or just things like that it's frustrating but that's that's what we've signed up for you know and we it's our mission throughout to make it seamless it's a tough gig and uh, it's also a glorious one and you are both in it all the way together for both of you i'll ask you now if there were one thing that you'd personally like to work on and improve what would that be Mm, for me it would be to stop thinking about work or um spending sometimes you're sitting with the kids and I'm guilty of it and you're not quite there Mm. and it's you're still working away or I'm like I can do one last email and it's just saying no now it's family time and I will do that later and it's 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 a hard it's I think every mum goes through it but I'm guilty of it and maybe if I if I could stop it that would be great I guess for me I still want to constantly refine all our restaurant experiences and make sure that the teams are working better together. I want them to all to enjoy coming to work. And the other thing is yeah, just to kind of spend more time with the family yeah, and be happy. Always. And if you believe in a vision, you'll always be busy. You'll always be fine. And, you know, everything always works out. It's just kind of adapting or changing the circumstances as much as you can to make everything seamless. And so, of course, at the time... Neither Sid nor Chand knew just how much that skill of being willing and able to adapt was going to be needed. That conversation had taken place months before we had any idea what a global pandemic was about to unleash on us all. I caught up again with Chand and Sid to see how they were feeling on the other side of lockdown. Cuisine Bites. I guess it's as close to business as usual, but obviously it's like you've been hit by a car and you have to get up and start running again. So... You don't forget that you were hit by a car. We've all changed the way we think. Huh? For me, it's always just there's something sort of hanging over the top of me now. Mm. Totally. Yeah. It's a, a whole weird normal because we, we've gone through level three. We're doing takeaways. Then we did level two, which was half takeaways with social distancing in the mix. And now it's kind of back to square one and normal. But you still feel like you should. there's something missing. It's not quite... Right. Will you continue with the takeaway um, as a sidearm or will you let that go completely? It really depends on the people. And that's what um, Sid and I are waiting to see. We've left them all on, but if the demand drops down to like one a week or something like that, then there's just no point continuing with it. But we still think it was really terrific to have the number of takeaways we did in um, all three restaurants, actually. We were overwhelmed. There's still a, uh, a small proportion of people who are still uh, reluctant to go out. So if they want to experience the restaurants at home, it gives them that option as well. 
uh, it doesn't change too much for us for them to come pick it up because the, the dishes are the same as on, on the restaurant's menus, uh, except they just need to warm it up if, if they want, you know. And I think a lot of people are also, um, like mums have said to me, you know, getting a babysitter right now is something they're not comfortable with. The extra cost of getting someone to sit the kids and come out fine dining or formal dining, this just makes it easier if they can just come and get a great meal at home. Plus, Why not? Plus you can stay in your pyjamas. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and if you've got a nice bottle of wine in your cellar, you won't want to enjoy it like that, you know? Yeah, they, 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 I, my cellar never has very much in it because I drink it all before it has a chance to accumulate. But, yes, it's a nice idea. Um, Sid, can I ask you, I've heard many chefs sort of saying that they, as much as they appreciated the support for the takeaway um, and the deliveries and everything, which was, you know, the, what kept you guys going through that period, but... I've had a few chefs sort of say to me that it, on the other side it just really almost depressed them because it's not what they feel that they're about. Did you have any of those sort of feelings? Oh, it was very hard. I mean, it was it was a complete new new thing for us and we learned a lot how, you know, how to adapt and how to transform food that travels kind of okay, but we sort of forgotten that what normal food like restaurant food was like because it's all about putting in takeaway containers, but yeah, it, it is depressing and it's it's heartbreaking. But at the same time, it definitely kept us busy in our minds and uh, just it gave it was a lot of uh, fresh energy from all the staff how they adapted such a busy moment and something completely different. They just embraced it so well, so that was refreshing in in that avenue. Mm. It was- Go to see the customers. Yeah, I mean the regular. Yeah. We had so many regular diners ordering takeaways or deliveries from all three places, different days. So just to be able to take it to them, um, some of them probably didn't recognize us because of our masks. But um, it was it was quite nice to be able to take food to them personally. Mm. Some people were dressing up, and yeah, you know totally. we, we would go there. They would be so excited to just get a takeaway meal from Cafe or French Cafe or Sedat. It was just the highlight of their week or it was a location and I think you know that just brought us so much joy see people gushing when they open the door (laughs) Uh, you can't you can't beat that you know Uh, but yeah it was challenging like that and doing deliveries was you know we had about nine ten people doing deliveries and so Chand and one of our managers would spend two hours every day just coming up with a driving roster. <laughs> yeah, completely different arm of the business, huh? A whole, whole new, whole new career almost, Chant. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was logistics. I said, now I've got logistics and freight added to my <laughs> CV. Well, at least, at least you got something out of it. What it brings home, though, is that a restaurant is not just about the food; it's the experience, and you can't deliver the experience, can you? Yeah, but I hope we never have to go back to, to that part well, again. Well, I, I <laughs> them say I'm, I was wrong and I had to say to Sid on day two, I was wrong. Takeaways is not easy. Having cassia food sometimes leak out of a box <laughs> while driving. But, you know, like we made... All those sauces, yeah. yeah while, while we were in lockdown, we, we made, the men, uh, made the menus for the takeaways and I was like, oh, for cassia, I think we should do rice and naan with every curry. And at that time, we didn't know the, the kind of uh, quantities we're going to go through and things. So the first day when we, uh, I think we ordered this food two days before and we, me and my head chef at Cassia, we were just overwhelmed uh, by how much food was going to go out on the first day. It was, uh, we calculated we needed dough for 400 nans every night. And, you know, that's just one person making 
making the bread within a three hour period. So that's about 110, 120 naans per hour. Plus, Good Lord. Plus caramelizing the meat like chicken, lamb, and uh, making, you know, the stuffed bread as well. That was extra. So it's all well and good to make a menu, but you don't really know what you're sort of signing up for, mm. you know. No, too hard. You want to go back to running a restaurant. Yeah, totally. <laughs> proper, proper service. Like, and, the, you know, a, a res- an empty restaurant with uh, full of brown bags is, is heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. I, I uh, must say, actually, speaking of heartbreaking, my heart was breaking for you at the beginning of it all when everybody galvanised into action when they realised that we were going to go, you know, into level three. The restaurants sort of started dropping off because people were being told to practice social distancing. And so, of course, everybody got into gear for the takeaways and deliveries. But for many, by the time they'd got the containers that they needed and got their menus organised, all that work the week before to sort of get it all together and then all of a sudden it was like, that's it, you're closed. It must have been absolutely devastating. It was. Just as we got those takeaway boxes delivered... We got um, them on Monday. We got them on the Monday. We were sitting there with actually um, the guys from Lilius and because we have the same landlords and we were discussing what do we do and we had these takeaway boxes being delivered and then we tuned in to Jacinda and she goes, no, no, close down. Poultry restaurants lost so much food in the yeah. fridges, distributed to all the staff. All, you know, all the wines that were opened by the bottle, it's, you know, the, if you add the three restaurants, it's like 80 to 100 wines, you know. Yeah, I, I reckon it, you would have been in a couple of days almost in shock, huh? It would have just been very hard. Yeah, we didn't know what to do. Yeah. In a way, it was a relief, at least, because mm-hmm. that whole sort of uncertainty, now I'm asking him to pivot into takeaways and he's reluctantly doing that because he can see that happening all around the world. And suddenly the decision's taken out of your hands. So mm. in a way, I was relieved. I was like, right, let's just close because we don't have to talk about this <laughs> for another few weeks and let's just go home and be with the kids. And yeah. I think you know, we went into lockdown, the, the, the sooner we would come back, you know, so that was a relief, I think, for the whole country. Yeah, yeah. And so much um, greatness has come out of that lockdown as far as people reconnecting with their families and actually having time to just stop. He, he became mum, which was great. <laughs> Yeah, I've never done so much cleaning, cooking, lots of studying with the kids, and that was awesome. As I said, though, Sid, you just want to go back to running a restaurant again now, don't you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's been very refreshing now, last couple of weeks, you know. Yeah. Especially now that the social distancing and uh, the single server's gone. Now we, you know, and pe- you can just tell people are sort of more comfortable coming out. Mm. And uh, they're, they're, they're ready to, you know, they're coming in big groups. Kind of, and kind of getting back. And, we all got very, very tired of our um, own cooking and so there was a honeymoon period coming out of it. But are you worried about the economy going forward and tightening of belts? Totally. I mean, you can tell even now people are coming out, but they're not spending the same as mm. they used to because, you know, there's there's so much uncertainty about the future. So, yes, it's definitely hard to tell. And we, we're sort of back to the basics, you know. It's like kind of opening a restaurant again where you, you sort of, you want to cook food that obviously is resonates with your kind of style, but at the same time, we want to give people a real soul in the experience, you know? So like, for example, at French Cafe, we've, you know, we've got like things like comfy duck leg and we've got beef that's cooked overnight and then glazed in a red wine sauce. So that really kind of comforts them when they come in, that fine dining environment, but the winter time really, you know, it's, it's, it's that time where you want to mm. eat those kind of dishes, but still 
have a real creative flair to them. Mm. There's many comments within the industry that fine dining as we know it will never be the same. I feel that there will always be a place for high-end dining and for premium, but I think um, you're right. At the moment, there's a transitional period as people are looking for more comfort and safety. So how are you feeling about that? Has it changed your approach to the core of your restaurants? I think we have to be careful about how we price ourselves in the market. Like earlier on, we would say, yes, we're going to use the most premium product because, and we're going to charge for it because people discerning customers will come and pay for it and should pay for it. But with what's happened, you have to be mindful and you have to think about everybody's wallet is hard hit. Both Sid and I have taken pay cuts as well. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, how we go spend our money now is a little bit more cautiously. So I think other people are doing the same. So I think fine dining will still continue because people will say instead of going and having three average or mid-range meals, I want that special one special occasion where I'm happy to pay a little bit more and have the best. So we need to price ourselves accordingly for the short term until we all heal. And so we've changed some of our pricing to reflect that in the restaurants. Yeah, I mean, ingredients and everything is the same. We just want it to be slightly more affordable for the diners. So they don't really have to watch their pennies so much when they want to go out, you know. There's almost an opportunity there for for all of us. Obviously, for Cuisine Magazine, there's an opportunity because people have reconnected in their kitchens and realised that they can cook when Mm. perhaps they thought that they couldn't. Uh, Not all of them, but but some. But for you, as you say, it is that thing of perhaps, well, yes, I'm I'm happier to stay at home and cook a little bit Mm. more, but when I do go out, I want it to be wow. Yeah, exactly. Now is, is more than ever. You can't have a bad experience. Can't have a bad experience. <laughs> uh, because people are, you know, people are going to spend, I don't know, two, three hundred dollars for a couple or a, a family. They have to have an X factor. And uh, like you just said, that a lot of people have been cooking at home and cooking pretty good stuff, you know. So it has to be exceptional when you go out and spend money. Mm. I feel like we will also change the way, like customers will change the way they give feedback because I don't think people will go onto social media as much and slate a restaurant like they used to. They're a little bit more mindful about the struggles in hospitality and that they don't want to add to anything like that. But they'll vote with their feet. So all of us restaurateurs need to watch what we're doing. We need to give them the best possible experience Mm. for that money. We have to be at the top of our game, giving the best value for money experience, given the times we're in. It's it always of, has been, but more than ever now, it's like time to, I think know? it's all like someone said to us, like we were having a chat, I think it was with Mo and um, Leslie from Apple. It's like kind of going back to the basics. Great service, great food is all it's all the about. The good old hospitality. The good old hospitality days. It's not about who's going to be the most innovative and tricky and who's going to pull the next magic trick out of the bag. It's not about that anymore. Cuisine Bites, brought to you by Gaganau. Many thanks to the Sarawats for their frank and honest words. It's still early days as our hospitality industry starts down the road to recovery and it needs your support now more than ever. So please, if you want your favourite restaurant or bar or cafe to still be here for the long haul, get out when you can and support your local. If you're in New Zealand or Oz, I'd love it if you'd support us as well by picking up a copy of our glorious 200th issue that is currently on sale. Or no matter where you are in the world, you can head over to cuisine.co.nz to subscribe and help us to continue to tell these important stories and share our delicious New Zealand flavour. Search for Cuisine Magazine to follow us on social. There are lots of snippets for food and drink lovers of all shapes and sizes on our Facebook and Instagram pages. 
Meanwhile, make sure you eat and drink well, always, and I'll catch you back here next week. Oh, I feel like we've been in therapy. Yeah, it's like a psychological <laughs> session. <laughs> My psychology degree has come in handy. <laughs> I think we should have a group hug. Yeah, we should. <laughs>